I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall, and this is Disorder, a podcast where we examine a pressing global issue like climate change, tax havens, or neopopulism. We look at how these issues have come to be part and parcel of our era of global disorder, and where we finish by proposing solutions to try to restore effective global governance that ultimately could help us find a semblance of order. This week, we're going to examine mass migration in our era of global disorder. Migration has become one of the most emotive political topics, and it is these strong views around it which have been essential in the rise of neopopulism. So how do the mass migrations actually work or not? What problems do they solve and what problems do they create? We're gonna discuss a few different ideas, particularly how could creating a transparent and fair global market of migrants radically alter states' policies towards one, migration itself, two, the international coordination mechanisms around the migration, and three, whether more coherent collective action could enable countries to implement win-win solutions. So Alex, migration is a very sensitive topic in the best of times. Absolutely. But the way that Trump and Brexit and Priti Patel and Suwala Braverman have made the situation now, it's like really difficult to have a level-headed discussion about the dollars and cents and hard power and cultural assimilation dimensions of the topic. How is this discourse around the migration issue just missing the point in general? Well, I think one of the biggest problems is that migration is currently being framed as entirely a negative thing, as something to be feared rather than something which can be managed. And I've been thinking about this quite a lot. Why has it become so negative? Well, I do think there are more people on the move, and we'll hear from both our interviewees in a minute, who do acknowledge there are more people on the move. But I also think it's because we are less confident societies right now. When you are growing economically, you are more open to more migrants coming in, helping boost our economy further. When you are more anxious, you're worried about your jobs, you're worried about your services in your local neighborhood, that's when you're more resistant to people coming in. And we have a brand of politicians right now, the neo-populists, who are weaponizing this new migration. And they are deliberately blurring the difference between refugees, genuine asylum seekers, economic migrants, and internally displaced people. And they're also raising this completely false notion that every single person on the move wants to come to the UK or to America. And that's not true either. I think you've hit the psychological dimensions bang on. The problem is not seeing the opportunity that migrants present. And maybe I am in a unique position as someone who's chosen to migrate to the UK. It's like a no brainer. The UK needs to have more migrants. They can boost the economy and they can be a cultural plus and certainly the food gets better. (laughs) Um, But I mean, you're not the image of a migrant who politicians are stirring up fear against. Culturally, you assimilate a little bit easier. 
into a sort of a world that British people think of as mainly Anglo-Saxon. I still will never accept bank holidays. So maybe I'm unassimilable. Yeah, but bank holiday is a kind of neutral term. It doesn't single out any particular Right, but I don't accept them. I morally don't accept bank holidays. I am willing to learn cricket rules and and I embrace all of that but I just don't accept bank holidays. (laughs) Why? What's your objection to bank holidays? It's like a Monday, dudes. You should work. There's no legitimate reason. It can't just be, this is the May bank holiday. I don't accept it. that's ridiculous. So my British colleagues get very angry at me. They're like, who is this stupid American? He's texting me, it's a bank holiday. And I'm like, I don't care. It's Monday. I want my email answered. Ah, well, as a member of that much maligned civil servant, of course, we love our bank holidays. Anyway, we digress. So although I may not assimilate properly to my life here in the UK, I am able to understand certain things about migration as a phenomenon in a way, having truly done it myself. It really clarifies to me that some countries don't seem to be willing to debate how best to provide the manpower and skills needed to compete in the modern world, as well as to preserve their traditions and cultures. It's one of these classic cases of a suboptimal solution emerging from a lack of coordination that isn't even dealing with the humanitarian dimension at all. I mean, take a simple dollars and cents hard power perspective, and yet we're still arriving at the wrong solutions. Well said, Jason. Let's hear from Lawrence Huang now. He's an analyst at the Migration Policy Institute, and he's been looking at migration that's being driven by climate change. I began our interview by asking him to give me a bit of context about how many people are actually migrating. What actual numbers are we talking about? It's helpful to look at a little bit of history when we're talking about how many people are moving. And I think what's really interesting is we are hearing all of these big numbers that more and more people are moving. And that is true. We all think they're coming to the UK, right? Or the US. Right. And they're not. So a couple of things are really important here. One is that the proportion of people moving in the world actually isn't massively spiking. So for the past few decades, we've basically had the same percentage of the world who are migrants. It's just as the number of people in the world grows, so does the number of migrants. And that's completely normal. What is true is that we have seen a greater increase in the number of displaced people. And that's an important distinction. Migration and displacement are slightly different. When we're talking about displacement, we're talking about forced displacement. We've seen last year a record number of people displaced, in part driven by all of the refugees who had to flee Ukraine, right? Key to that, however, is that the record number of displaced people, many of them are actually moving within their borders, within the country. And so I think that's the other point that is helpful to remember when we get all these fears around mass migration is that, yes, we have these big numbers, but it's, you know, we're not seeing waves of people coming from Africa into Europe or from Latin America into North America. That's just not what we've seen. Right. Okay. So there are large numbers of people on the move. Migration has persisted throughout human history. We are seeing more numbers of internally displaced or forcibly displaced people, but they're not all coming from the global south to the north. So where is most migration taking place? 
When we're talking about mass migration crises in recent years, we've seen large-scale migration, large-scale displacement out of the Middle East and North Africa, particularly post-2015-16 into Europe. We've also seen large-scale displacement out of Venezuela. We've seen large-scale displacement to Bangladesh and Southeast Asia um, from Myanmar. And most recently, we've seen large-scale displacement out of Ukraine. And I think what's really interesting here to note is that most of these people moved into the neighboring countries, right? So we didn't have people moving from Venezuela all the way up to the U.S. border. And even when we had these really large crises, when we had mass migration, we have tools to manage it. So in the Ukraine case, the European Union had a fairly coordinated and fairly remarkable response. And they basically said, these are Ukrainian refugees, and we're going to make sure that they have basic rights, that they have access, that they can enter, that we give them protection, that they have access to health and school and housing and things like that. And there was this really important groundswell of public support around that as well. But we have ways to manage them. And even going back into history, we see that many of the sort of refugee crises, people are moving to neighboring countries, and often they're moving to low and middle income countries who then have to face the burden of hosting all of these refugees. There's just one other point I'd like to pick up, which is most migrants, if they're forcibly displaced, am I right in thinking most of them ultimately want to go back home when it's safe for them to do so? In general, that's what we're seeing, right? We've seen this in multiple crises. People want to go home and people actually want to stay at home. One of the things that we have been looking at is in the context of climate change, they should be able to make choices around being able to stay at home. And so if you look at, for example, the Pacific Islands, where you have really severe and immediate climate crises. You have sea level rise, you have salination, you have all of these different issues that are making it just almost impossible for people to live there, especially if they're living in coastal areas. But you talk to them, you talk to the NGOs, you talk to the governments who are working with them, they don't want to leave. So can we come on a little bit more into how climate change is affecting migration, because some of the examples we've talked about so far, those are forcible displacements through sort of conflict and human rights abuses. But I think you've been looking into a lot more detail about how climate change is affecting migration. Can you explain that a little bit more for us, how climate change is now feeding into this? Absolutely. So we are seeing that more people are having to move because climate is impacting their lives. Now, there's not an immediate link between climate change to mass migration. But what we're actually seeing is the impacts of climate change are making it harder for people to live for lives. If I am an agricultural worker or I am any sort of farmer, any person who's dependent on the land, but we are seeing increasing levels of drought, increasing levels of desertification, it's not like drought magically makes me leave. It's instead... If I can't rely on my income, if I can't rely on there being regular rain in the seasons that we expect it to rain, how am I supposed to build a life for myself and my children? You have written that one can take a three-pronged approach to helping address migration through climate change. The first one would be try and help people to stay where they are. The second one would be to help them move to somewhere 
that is more sustainable for them, but it doesn't necessarily involve moving out of the country. It could be to a different area of the same country. And then the third area is helping people in transit, the people who might potentially be looking to cross borders. And again, I think that's one of the misconceptions about migration. I mean, certainly in the UK, there is all this fear that everybody inexorably is trying to come to Europe. Whereas the numbers we're talking about, the difficulties in moving, the dangers, the risk, the costs, the fact that people actually don't want to move too far away from their homes, actually they would be happy to be able to be resettled somewhere where they could be more sustainable locally. So what are some of the things we can do to help people stay where they are? So these three strategies, the idea is you need to manage the root causes of migration and displacement. We can do this looking at both the sort of climate disasters as well as some of the slower impacts of climate change. So we know that there's a lot of people who get displaced because of floods, because of storms, because of hurricanes, earthquakes. And many of these disasters are becoming more severe and more frequent because of climate change. And so what do you do? You help people prepare for those disasters. Right. So there's really exciting initiatives around early warning. You can also do work around helping them people move away from the areas where the impacts of climate change are coming. And so some of this is what we call planned relocation. There are communities, there are households, who just won't be able to live there anymore. And in the best cases, these are communities that consult among themselves, that really work together democratically and make a decision that we know this is coming, we're going to work with the government, we're going to work with NGOs, we're going to work with international organizations to move. This movement is internal though. So the planned relocation work that's underway in Fiji, they're just moving higher up away from the sea level. Right. And this right. is an area where there is more work needed. Could you talk a little bit more about the politics of migration and why countries are sort of reluctant to do as much, given that there are solutions that can actually manage the problem? So one of the fundamental starting points when we're talking about the challenges to managing migration in a coordinated collective way is that migration and border management and all of these sorts of issues are matters for national sovereignty, right? National governments control who enters their country legally, and this is not going to change. And we have to look at some of the factors that make governments reluctant to let people enter. And politics is a big part of this. I think a lot of governments are now starting to realize, in particular rich Western Global North governments, starting to realize that they do need migration because of demographic change, because of labor market shortages, in particular post-COVID. Now we have a few governments actually looking at their migration strategies, looking at their migration policies and trying to figure out what can we do to attract more migrants? What can we do to select the migrants that we want? And this does not always extend to refugees and displaced people. And this is why it's really important to keep in mind this distinction between a migrant and a refugee. This is a really blurry boundary between the two. But when we're talking about now this shift where governments are trying to attract migrants, 
often they're trying to attract the migrants who are going to make the clearest, most immediate economic contribution. We shouldn't jump from the fact that governments are now often looking to attract more migrants to the assumption that, all right, now they're going to take in everyone who's affected by climate change. That's not their goal and that's not the world that we're living in. On the question of politics, in some cases, migration is instrumentalized. It's used by populists and far right to raise public fears, to get elected, to get more power. But there's also a valid, reasonable, understandable fear and anxiety from many who don't believe in this sort of extremism. There are demographic changes going on, and often this creates anxieties. Or if you have large numbers of migrants coming into a community, in particular, if it's a small community, maybe it's a border town, There are valid fears that these migrants are going to strain housing supply, services, labor markets, job opportunities. Now, these problems can be managed. You can help them find housing. You can help them find jobs without negatively impacting host communities. And there are ways to do this. But there are fears that don't come out of nowhere. And I think many of these sort of anxieties can make it harder to develop policies that are sort of win-win-win. You've come up with some fairly encouraging examples of individual instances where countries have worked quite imaginatively and creatively, like Fiji. So are you sort of optimistic or pessimistic that our leaders are going to keep on this track and try and come up with good policies? You know, I'm an optimist as a person, and I hope to constantly look for optimism. And I think we started seeing countries that we don't traditionally necessarily see as pro-migration really start looking at, we really do need migrants. The other point is that there might be some promising work to be done at the regional rather than the global level. In the Pacific, we are seeing efforts through the sort of Pacific regional institutions to develop a climate mobility framework. In East Africa, we saw East African governments come together to adopt a joint statement on climate and migration. In Latin America, there are really interesting examples in Argentina to provide visas for people who are being displaced for various disasters in the region. The really exciting stuff is happening in the global south where they're being affected by climate change, where they're being impacted by it right now, and so they have to develop policies. So I think there's also a case for the countries in the global north learning from those experiences as well. How can we learn from good policy that's happening in other countries and adapt it to our context to make it work? Because the countries that take proactive steps now to develop policies to manage migration are going to be better prepared once we start seeing more severe impacts and and sort of the changing flows of migration because of climate change. Now that we understand how global flows of migration are functioning, or in reality, not really functioning, we're going to hear how it's possible to create a marketplace that could actually bring a semblance of order to the currently chaotic movement of people. That's after the break. So there's so much misinformation on this issue, isn't there? Yeah. I felt like Lawrence really demystified much of the nonsense you hear in the media about mass migration. In fact, not as many people are moving as you'd think, 
but also the fact that the primary dynamic in global migration isn't that migrants from war-torn or economically disadvantaged countries move directly to the UK or Europe, as the neopopulist suggests. That's actually a very minor flow compared to the fact that the big story in migration is people move into the neighboring states. Absolutely. And also that countries in the global south are bearing by far the biggest burden of refugees and migrants, and they're responding more generously than we are. But I don't like that term burden, Alex. Yeah, burden, thank you. the mere use yes. of the term, yeah. plays into this, be a nice person, share your money with them, let them come and live with you. No, that's an absurd term. Refugees are not a burden. Can you imagine the economic and cultural benefit that the U.S. reaped from welcoming Jewish refugees after the Holocaust? Or what about non-Jewish Eastern Europeans who fled the Soviet Union or who came over in droves when the Soviet Union collapsed? And if you think, I think just white migrants are not a burden, absolutely not. What about Vietnamese or Chinese refugees from their communist regimes? We're talking trillions upon trillions of dollars of burden that they brought in terms of economic growth to the U.S. And this is without even dealing with all that amazing food. So (laughs) I don't see the burden here when it's done properly. This is something that I discussed with Parag Khanna. He's also the founder and CEO of Climate Alpha and founder and managing partner of Future Map. Parag's latest book is Move, where people are going for a better future. I began by asking him how he looks at the history of mass migration. Migration is part of the human story, part of the human journey. It's literally how we got to where we are. All of us have migration in our roots, in our heritage, in our collective and individual histories. And we've been moving for at least the last 100,000 years. So we've gone from millions of migrants to tens of millions of migrants to hundreds of millions of migrants. And in this century, we will surely have over a billion people who are either voluntarily or involuntarily resettled or relocated due to a wide range of complex phenomenon, everything from the search for a better life to climate change to conflict. How would you kind of sketch that complex interplay between global order, policing borders, which is fairly new, you know, even in the 1880s, there really was not a policing of borders, and then where we're at now? There is an overarching principle, an ordering principle at work, and that principle is supply and demand. Because despite the fact that we have more borders than we've ever had in history, we also have more movement across those borders than ever in history. So the way to think about borders is not that they are absolute barriers, rather that they are one particular type of friction. What you do find, though, is that supply and demand is this overarching principle that has always prevailed. When societies have needed, when they have had labor shortages, experienced labor shortages, they have imported people. And today, you find that that's one of the key driving forces, really, particularly since the end of World War II, when labor shortages were quite immense, particularly in Western Europe. And it's interesting because there is a global disorder when it comes to the institutional absence, right? There is a market failure of institutions to regulate and govern global migration. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, because in fact, it happens more and more. 
despite the fact that there isn't an overarching set of institutions that govern it. And I think that is the deepest evidence of all that it is just a supply-demand principle at work in regulating migration. In your book, Move, you talk about four scenarios for how the world may address the problems of climate change and mass migration. Parag, could you sketch out the new Middle Ages, regional fortresses, barbarians at the gate, and Northern Lights scenarios, and the role that global institutions and global collective action, or their absence, could play in leading us through these scenarios? Sure. Well, this kind of two-by-two matrix has on the y-axis more or less sustainability, and on the x-axis more or less migration. And regional fortresses is in some ways the scenario that is most akin to the status quo. You have relatively low interregional migration, but you have increasing efforts at sustainability, not at the global level, but more at the regional level. Countries that are trying to decarbonize their economies, reduce their emissions, invest more in alternative renewable energy sources, those kinds of things, but not in a way that's significantly reducing total global emissions in ways that genuinely forestall climate change. The barbarians at the gate scenario and the new Middle Ages scenarios overlap to some degree. They're both fractured, they're both violent, there's resource stress, resource conflicts, water wars, you might say. Again, uncontrolled migration. The question is, how localized is it versus how much does it spill over? But then there's a scenario where you have that state failure, but you also have the large-scale uncontrolled attempts at international migration and the water wars, right, and the land grabs in geographies that are food-rich, water-rich, and so forth. And then there's that fourth scenario in the upper right quadrant in which you have high mobility and high sustainability. And that's the scenario that I'm calling Northern Lights, in which you have what I call pre-design, right? You're not just hoping for the best, you're actively curating migrations of people from resource-stressed areas to resource-rich areas, but you're doing so in a sustainable fashion of settlements that are very circular in nature, meaning self-sufficient in energy generation, in food production. So that's a light footprint mobile nomadism for large numbers of people that we actively curate. And that's what Northern Lights is about. We actually do have every technology and the capacity and the money to bring about the Northern Lights scenario tomorrow. But we don't have the political will to do it, the institutional architecture to do it, the leadership to do it. You've talked about how supply and demand is the major driving force behind migration. This made me wonder, as our population increases, how do you see this mechanism playing out in the future? As we enter a depopulating world, uh, you know, of P, what I call peak humanity in the book, when we reach the maximum human population, just under 10 billion people, and we start to realize that demographics has become a zero-sum game, then we will engage in what I call the global war for young talent. And countries will, in fact, be actively competing. It'll be a race to the top in terms of offering and issuing incentives to attract young people into their economies. That's already happening today. I think what's promising is that before COVID, I don't think most people could name a single country and they had probably never heard of the phrase nomad visa. Well, today about a hundred countries have nomad visa programs, residency by investment programs, talent visa programs, 
all of these kinds of things. Overnight, 100 countries. COVID is the best thing that ever happened to waking countries up to the need to be active participants in the global war for young talent. And overnight, this massive industry blossomed to enrich and enable and facilitate and promote migration, the thing that we are celebrating. It did not require a central actor, a central governing body. It required a central shock. I see you and I as preaching the markets. We want a market mechanism that works about allocating talent with resources and needs to get a win-win outcome. When most people think about global governance or even global collective action, they get scared and they think that there are some pointy-headed bureaucrats sitting in a room who are going to be deciding their futures, when in fact what we want is to have enough regulation and legislation to have a free functioning market where individuals can make a choice and can lead to win-win solutions. Am I missing something? Well, free functioning choice, yes. I mean, I do talk about the marketplace, you know, in the in this war for talent. And it is a marketplace of vendors, if you will, which are the governments, the countries, the societies that are seeking to attract that talent. And we do exist in that marketplace. But if you're acknowledging that there is that marketplace, but that there isn't a central coordinating mechanism, then you're appreciating the power of supply and demand. Now, I think we actually need more than that. I am with you that we should have governance mechanisms that promote these population transfers from stressed areas that we should be thinking about, not just the talented digital nomads, which are a small fraction of total migrants, but obviously the climate refugees, the asylum seekers, right? The political refugees as well. That's going to be hundreds of millions of people. And clearly, those are not wanted populations. No one wants those migrants, but they have human rights to dignity. There is a right to move. I believe that mobility is the paragon human right of this century. Uh, and so we do need that governance or those governance mechanisms that promote that mobility and that find those stable habitats for those populations. If we create a market and let it decide the movement of people, do we then run the risk of certain areas becoming overpopulated? And how do we regulate or implement this supposed market? Would it truly be sufficient to sort things out? Or would we have to worry about the Canadians becoming such an attractive destination for migration that all of a sudden they master the market and end up becoming overpopulated? What I've done in the book is to, first of all, to take the 8 billion people in the world and bracket out half the world's population that will probably never relocate. So on the high side, I estimate even the number of people who have the capacity to migrate at a maximum of three to three and a half billion people, which is a massive overestimation even in of itself. The largest possible number I could ever imagine ever migrating even in science fiction is say three billion people. So now let's take those three billion people. Are they all coming to the United Kingdom? No, the vast majority of those people are in South and East Asia. And so the vast majority of migration has been and will be on the Eurasian continent which is already home to two thirds of the world population. And the majority of that migration is gonna be within Asia. So Asians within Asia is the bulk of the story. That may seem like it's less relevant to people in the UK, but from a utilitarian standpoint, that's where the action is. And those two population vectors, we've never seen in human history. 
we could not have imagined even 20 years ago, the scale at which those migration directionalities are going to unfold in the coming decades. So that's the space to watch. Wow, Paragra has so many pressing challenges that we as a species need to tackle, especially around this idea of not lurching from one policy to the other, but letting markets gradually dictate things like migration and making them more efficient, and then using the ability of people to migrate as a mechanism to release pressure valves and fill in things like labor shortages. Alex, do you think that this market approach could be a way that we could order the disorder? It is. It does take leadership, however. It takes leadership to demystify the migration issue, to stop describing it, as you correctly called me out, for describing all migrants as a burden and as a negative thing to be feared. So it definitely takes leadership. It also requires proactive management anticipating the issue, preparing facilities, investing in services. There will always, however, be a flow of uncontrolled migrants, and they can't be stopped. People who are desperate, who are fleeing war or conflict or famine, there will always be those flows. And now we have the new numbers of climate migrants. And for there, we need to invest more in local solutions support host communities near the countries where they are fleeing. So we do need to be more generous and recognize there will always be that. But in terms of having migrants and welcoming them in our own country, yes, a market solution can work, but it requires leadership. For sure. That's the issue. One thing to keep in mind, Alex, is that a market can work, but it doesn't need to be an unregulated market. It can be a well-regulated market one with certain common sense regulations, one that we might prevent a talent war to attract Indian IT programmers or Lebanese traders while ignoring, for example, Eastern European lorry drivers, because we can't just put a dollars and cents on them and bid for humans. That's not appropriate either. But we can have a migrant market with common sense regulations where water can flow downhill and people can end up in the place where the job and the skill they have is needed. But then do you need a kind of central clearinghouse for that to work? I'm all a fan of any kind of central clearinghouse, you know. I never met a globally powerful international institution that I didn't want to create and have experts man and create great rules for. Personally, I think you have more faith that global institutions can always work. No, they tend but not go to ahead. work. They tend not to work now. I just want them to work. And I think that if we thought better about how to create the mandarins that would run them and how to vest them with the right supra sovereignty, then they would work. I'm a huge believer that to combat the global enduring disorder, you need these types of institutions capable of setting the rules of the game and engaging in high level horse trading. But from your experience as a diplomat, do you think it's not feasible or do we just need to change how we go about these things? I think we sometimes can get there. 
But I also believe there's always going to be a slight cultural nervousness. It's easier to take people who look and feel more like you, who feel like they will present less of a threat culturally. But then that's the point. Most refugees don't actually want to move far from their homes either. And we need to distinguish between migrants who are looking for a better livelihood and we can manage that and we can integrate them and we can use them to benefit our own economy and refugees who need temporary protection. I have a story that has just come to mind. Last year, I interviewed a Ukrainian family who had moved to the UK and they were really grateful for the sanctuary that a British family had provided for them. But something they said they found really difficult to manage was that anytime they went out into the town, all the people in the town were very welcoming. They were very sympathetic to the refugees from Ukraine. But they kept on saying, aren't you happy to be here? Aren't you just so lucky to be here? And this Ukrainian woman, she said, I found that really difficult. No, I was forced from my home. My husband has been left behind fighting in this conflict. I don't know when I'll be able to go home. So no, I don't feel lucky. I do feel grateful but I can't keep saying, yes, I'm thrilled to be here. They want to go home. People tend to forget that throughout all of human history, the majority of migrants tended to go back within their lifetimes to where they came from. And this is really paradoxical. In the middle of the 19th century, when it took three months to take a ship across the Atlantic, most people, even the Irish, or the Italians went back within their lifetimes so that- I had no idea. If 15 million came to America, eight or nine million went back. We just have the six or seven million that remained. And that's because people long for where they're from and where, where they have their organic social roots and connections. And this shows how absurd it is to stigmatize, oh, the migrants are just coming here to take our better way of life. Yeah. I mean, also, we all came from somewhere. It's like people who talk about belonging to a very distinguished family that goes back generations. I mean, everybody's family goes back generations. Right. Yeah. I think what's even more crazy on this point in the UK debate is people who are really into the fact that they can name their 22nd great-grandfather think somehow that that means that he wasn't an immigrant. Actually, almost all of the Celtic peoples that lived here were genocided between the second century AD and the end of the Norse invasions in the 11th century. The reality is even if you're Celtic today, the vast majority of your DNA comes from somewhere on mainland Europe because everyone is an immigrant to this island, essentially. Right. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. Thank you, Jason. You're an encyclopedia of knowledge and you know more about the UK than I do. Thanks to Parakana and Lawrence Wang for joining us. Yes, because I'm like all immigrants. I really, really, really want to be accepted in my country of migration. So I have to be more English than the English. And you have to learn to like bank holidays. Believe me, they grow on you. It stops at cricket and best bitter. I like cricket, I like my best bitter. I'm never gonna like these fucking bank holidays. What? what I will like is ordering the disorder. So if you wanna help us order the disorder over a pint of a best bitter, 
then subscribe to the show so that you get to listen to every episode. And to join the discussion, follow us on Twitter at Disorder Show. We're also putting articles and thought pieces around our era of global disorder and the disorder that bank holidays bring and reap and, and sow havoc on our website. You can find all of this at natoandtheglobalenduringdisorder.com. I find it a bit embarrassing to be sitting here joking with so much levity when we're actually talking about very serious issues. So perhaps it's a good thing next week I'm away. <laughs> and instead, you will have the pleasure of our excellent correspondent, David Patrakarakos, in the co-host's seat. Maybe he doesn't like bank holidays either. I don't know. He'll be unpacking the role of NATO with you, Jason. You'll look at what it is and what it means to us in Europe and the US. And as we sign out, I really want to thank our producer, George McDonough, our executive producer, Neil Fern, Goal Hangers, Jack Davenport, and also our former program managers, Zena Starbuck and Guy Fiennes. This show wouldn't happen without them. We hope you have an orderly week. Bye.